If you have your book from last night, notes for the morning are in there too. You can see what page it's on. Just, oh, help me out there, Brian. Page 12. Tuesday morning, page 12. If you don't have a book, they're right here. A little bit less, Jim. I do, but that's, that's good enough. We'll go with it. It's not going to be a major part of what I'm doing here. Okay. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Get all set up. Our mornings are going to be a little more uh, like Sunday school, as in a little more interactive. You want to ask a question, uh, stick your hand up. I'll be glad to entertain a question. I hope to... Uh, I hope to challenge your thinking a little bit. Maybe, maybe I'll just uh, encourage you to do what you're already doing. But before I do that, um, where's Stacy Leeper? Are you here? There you are. You, you had my girls in junior high, right? And our son also. He'll be out here later in the week sometime. I want to know how they were in school. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember do you remember the musical program we did at Christmas? I don't know, we'll talk about that sometime, but I got roped into finishing a choir project. The teacher got sick and couldn't finish. And so I was leading the junior high choir at Seattle Christian, which was about 40, 45 junior hires. And without a doubt the most challenging thing probably I've ever done. <laughs> Uh, I would talk to these kids, and those would start talking, and I would talk to these kids, and those would start talking, and, and that went on right up until the actual moment of performance. But uh, that was fun. Great to see uh, how the body of Christ is interconnected. Um, you know, who to think? Who'd think that? Uh, who to think that you get to see what they're like all grown up? You know. So, thank you for your uh, ministry and their life. I'll open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. When I was a young assistant pastor, I had a big wake-up call one day. I was sitting in my office, minding my business, and boom, in comes the, one of my teenagers. I was a youth and music pastor. One of my teenagers comes in, and his dad, and boy, they were having an argument. And uh, they basically wanted me to referee. They each wanted me to take their side. You know how that goes in relationship conflicts. And they're going like this, and I don't know what the expression on my face was, but inside my head it was Bambi in the headlights. And I thought, what do I say? And I really didn't know where to go. I really didn't know what to do it. It was kind of a culmination of, of me trying to think about people with, with deep difficulties. I mean, and I don't mean to diminish anything that anybody is going through now or has gone through, but, you know, there are, thing, there are times when you stub your toe and there are times when you break your leg and in, a, in a spiritual, personal sense. And I was, trying to th- I was feeling frustrated that I did not know how to help people when they broke their leg, spiritually speaking. And this was a broken leg. I knew it was a broken leg before it came into my office. I just hadn't seen it in person and in public yet. And 
they were wanting me to have an answer, and I didn't know what to say. I don't know what I did say, but one of the things I should have said is if you're the pastor of this church and you can't work this out with your son, how do you expect a rookie like me to do it? And it didn't get worked out. And that broke my heart. Because more than anybody in the church, I wanted to reach the pastor's son. Because I was one. Time goes on, and the Lord graciously brought me into contact with some people who could... It was sort of a movement, if you will, of saying, hey, God has the answers for the deep difficulties of life. And I began to read and study and, and learn from some godly men and women and begin to, to have a sense of knowing what to say in those difficult times and of being able to help people. And boy, that was exciting. And, and as time went on and I counseled a lot of people with a lot of marriage difficulties, I began to see a pattern. And the pattern was this. About 95% of the people that I see in marriage difficulty sowed the seeds of their crisis during their dating. They didn't know it, but they were laying a foundation that was going to result in problems. And as I began to realize that, uh, a growing conviction came in me, which was this. As much as God will help me to do it, I want to teach people how to start well in part so I don't have to see them in my office, (laughs) but even more so so that they don't have to come to a crisis, and even more so so that they can be used of God in their lives without a deep difficulty that that slows them down. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. It's sort of uh, it, we don't know if it came really at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, but, but early in his ministry, he preaches this message, and it's sort of like, here it is. Here's the summary of the whole thing, of the whole Christian walk, as it's going to be called. And when he gets done with that sermon, here's the final challenge, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will compare him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus said there's two ways you can build your life. You can build your life on his sayings, on him, on his truth, or you can build it some other way. Now here he's talking specifically about people who heard the truth and then essentially walked away. They said, I don't like that. I'm not going to listen to that. I know better than that. You don't understand my situation, Jesus. And they did something else. And he says, what's going to happen is your house is going to fall. And the reason it's going to fall is because the foundation was bad. And I want to talk to you today about the foundation of a marriage relationship. And that foundation is dating. Now, right away, some of you are going, geez, Dave, I'm already married. I know. That's why all these kids are here. 
And some of you are going, I, I'm not really into dating yet. I know. You're the ones I really want to get through to. Actually, you parents and grandparents are the ones I really want to get through to. Because I've seen Christian parents over and over do something other than follow the words of Jesus and their family turns into a big Jerry Springer show and they're going, I don't know what happened. I want to talk to you today about the Christian way, the discipleship way to form a relationship that leads to marriage. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through it because there's way more stuff than one hour's worth, but I'm going to give this, this hour, hour and a half, whatever it takes here today, till you fall off your chairs. And, and that's why I've put almost all of my note lines in your notes. You don't really have to take notes, so to speak, other than, hey, there's a thought I want to write down or to add to this. But I, I want to get to the big points, and there's three big points that I'm going to get to. But... I believe without doubt that all of you in this room are either, if you're not married, 99.9% of you will get married. You know, that's the statistic. Whether you think you will or not, that seems to be the average. Okay? A small percentage of people don't, and that's okay. That's, there's nothing ungodly about that. So if you're here single, you need to be listening. And if you are already married, you need to be listening because there are your own children, your grandchildren, your Sunday school kids, your Awana kids, your youth group kids, and I want to just push you today to influence people. I want you to influence people because apparently somebody isn't. <laughs> a year ago, I heard that a young man in my church was engaged to an unbeliever. I'm just going to give you an example of how people aren't influencing others. And I'm going to start with myself. This guy grew up in our church. He stayed godly. He walked with the Lord all the way through a hitch in the military. He gave me examples of things he did to avoid the pitfalls of the military. And he came back to our church and started being active in our church again. Next thing I know, I, I kind of heard rumblings that he's dating an unbeliever, and then he's engaged to an unbeliever. And so I, I, I said, hey, would you come in and visit with me? And I opened up the Bible, and I talked about the passage that we'll look at in a minute that says, don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And I explained that about marriage. And I said, have you ever thought about that? And he went, not like that. Now, please, please don't quote me. And oh, I, I think real life examples are the best. So be careful how you use what I'm going to say. His mama sits in my church every week. His mama is an active member of our church. But you know what? When he said, I've never thought of that passage like that, I had to stop and say, have I ever taught on 2 Corinthians 6 about believers not marrying unbelievers? And you know what? I don't think I've ever taught that, at least not in the whole broad church. And I thought, and then I went to my bookshelf. I thought, I'm going to give you something to read to go out and think about this. It ain't there. There's books for people who are married to unbelievers. Here's how to love your unbeliever. But there's nothing written that's saying, listen, have you thought this through? And I failed him. And in my opinion, somebody in his family failed him. His youth leaders failed him. His Sunday school teacher failed him. And so, but, and you know what was interesting is he's got it all figured out how he's going to make it work. 
I want you to be an influencer, and I want to be an influencer because, because the, the passage we're working on, and we'll get to it tonight in Second Peter, it says, if you walk with the Lord and grow in the Lord, you can escape the corruption that is in the world because people in the world live by their desires. What's the biggest element of, of decay and dysfunction and breakdown in the world? The family. Heartache, 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 heartache. Problem, problem, problem. Because the world doesn't live this way, they live by their desires. And, and, and they don't get up in the morning saying, I'm going to be wicked, not all of them. And, and they just get up and say, what pleases me? What do I like? And that's the way they live. And pretty soon they come to a breakdown in their family and they go, well, that's the way it works. If I could just find the right person, everything will work better. And it won't. The statistic on divorce is not 50% of, it's 50% of all marriages, but it goes like this. About 40% of first marriages and about 60% of second marriages and even more of third marriages. So people don't get it. They think they're getting smarter, but they aren't. Now, I know there's exceptions to every, you know, uh, I'm, I'm aware that I'm aware that occasionally there are some people that really do things right and then somebody makes a sinful choice in marriage. I understand that. But, but, I'm here to say, in my experience, what I have heard, what I have observed is most of the mistakes are made in dating. So number one, the first and most important concept in building a lasting marriage is you must be a disciple of Christ. That's really rocket science, isn't it? I want to try and help you see why this is important, though. Here's here's a description of a disciple. I just put a few descriptors down. A disciple believes in Christ as their Savior. That is the beginning point. But I've used the word disciple. You must be a disciple, not just a person who says, I believe in Christ. I can tell you stories about that, too. I talk about a, a lady in our church right now whose husband said, I believe in Christ when they got married. And it didn't seem that obvious to me that he was a disciple. And sure enough, after a few years, he goes, no, I don't believe any of that. Be a disciple. Be a disciple of Christ. What is a disciple? A disciple believes in Christ. They are surrendered to Christ's commands. A disciple is producing spirit-filled character. Do I have this up here? What have I got? Let's see what's going on. There it is. A disciple believes in Christ their Savior. A disciple is surrendered to Christ's commands. A disciple is producing spirit-filled character. If, um, the sister that shared this morning, uh, Cody, I forget her first name, but uh, she said, I looked at my life. I'm living, I'm living a Christian life, and, and it was an encouragement that she really was a, a, a disciple. And that is what we should all be looking for. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? You know, A disciple is growing in Christ-likeness. A, a, a disciple is focused on serving God. Now, I, I probably didn't tell you anything you didn't already know. But has anybody ever said to a young person, Hey, you're looking to get married? Where's your effort at discipleship right now? Where's your effort in your life at discipleship? Because 
Who you are has a huge impact on who you're going to look for. If you really are living like this, are you going to take the first thing on two legs? I mean, really, think about it. Now, if you're a parent, one of the things you ought to be thinking about as your child grows up is, the best way I can help them marry well is to be a godly person. How can I encourage that? How can I motivate that? How can I, what can I do to show them the priority of that? In our church in Tukwila, there were three families with three different outcomes, and they were all active in the church. Three different outcomes of who their kids married. And I honestly believe that one of the differences is this. Mom and dad, are you living like this? If you're living like this, you're giving an example of it to the kids, and they're growing up, watch this, they're growing up thinking that's normal. They think that's normal. And so this becomes the basis of how you live, how you make decisions. When you're going to them in, 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 in a parent-child discipline situation, and, and you're talking about things, is this your framework? Or is your, does your framework move outside of it? Your manner of life has a huge impact on who you seek, who you find, how you will conduct your relationship before engagement, during engagement, and in marriage. Now think about this. How is this kind of a life going to affect the way you date? There's been a big, you know, uh, when I was young and dating... The talk was always like this about dating. How far can you go? It was always a bit, you know, how, how physically far can you go and still not sin? That was kind of one of the focal points of teaching on dating because everything else was sort of like, well, just whatever, you know. And after a number of years, people started to say, well, that's not, that's not very good and so they, they rejected that sort of secular model of dating with a little dab of Christianity, and they ran all the way over here to something called courtship. And courtship has different, uh, different uh, connotations to different people. I want to say run right here. It's not about your method of dating. You call it dating I taught some Russian pastors. They call this time of life friendship. They don't use the word dating. They don't use the word courtship, but it actually is sort of a family arranged. If the family doesn't approve, you can't have a friendship. And yet one of the Russian pastors said, that doesn't work either. I know a family in my church that hooked up their, child, their son with a girl in the church, and they ended up getting married, and they forgot to tell the girl that he was a drug addict. Discipleship is the key in the person who's dating and in the parent of that person or the people around them. It's so simple. It's like, how can we not know that the key to life is living for the Lord? <laughs> Whether it's dating or having a job or whatever it is. Now, the next point is even more rocket science. You need to seek a disciple. 
And now here is where I think many people do break down. What I mean by that is somehow they have not gained the wisdom to know how to identify a disciple. Now, obviously, the starting point of discipleship is to be a believer. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to take time. I I believe all the scripture references are in your notes, are they not? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're not going to take time to turn because I want to push on through this. Um. This is the starting point. Does the person say, I, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior? Are they willing to say that? In fact, I would, based on Romans 10, I would say this. If you're talking to someone who refuses to say the words, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, no matter what else they say about their life, they're not a Christian. With the heart, one believes, and with the mouth, confession is made. Okay? Somehow God connects those two things. And so, oh yeah, I go to church. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Don't No, that is the starting point. Do you believe in Christ as your Savior? Do you reject all other belief systems? Or however you want to verbalize it. Now, here is a piece of rocket science. Why do believers marry unbelievers? Because they fell in love. Okay? I understand that any boy and any girl, any young man and any young woman, woman can spend time together and develop a romantically loving relationship. That's kind of what happens with young men and young women. Um, it's what God intends. And so when... I talk to this young man in my church and say, this is not going to work. You need to break this off. You need to stop. You need to slow down and so on. What's the main reason he doesn't want to stop? He's got this deep relationship with a fine young girl. You know, other than the fact that she's not a believer, she seemed like a real nice person. Now, here's the next piece of rocket science. Whoop. How do you keep from falling in love with an unbeliever? Don't date them. That's my daughter right there. Yeah, that's her. I was teaching on this in my Sunday school two or three years ago. I don't know when. And and I got to thinking, I'm not sure I ever actually said the words, you cannot date an unbeliever. And I went to Stephanie and said, did I ever say that right out? And she said, I don't think so. But then I said, did you know that was my standard? And she said, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because what did I always ask if you would talk about somebody? I kind of like a boy. Do you remember? What church do they go to? Now, I know people can go to church and not be Christians, but not a lot of straight-up unbelievers go, don't, go to church. But I didn't say, do they go to church? I said, what church do they go to? Because I'm going to find out if they go, and I'm going to find out what brand of Christian they are. I think that's a good question. You can do this some other way. I don't want to hear that the person said, oh, yeah, I believe in Christ. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that they're a disciple. Somehow, parents have to be part of this solution. I, 
I'm fairly confident with a family I know that had three girls who all married unbelievers that mom and dad really didn't step up and say, no, that's wrong. You cannot do it. You can't start. Because if you start, you're setting yourself up to get connected and you're going to want to marry them. Young people, more than anything else, you've got to start right here and say, I am not going to marry an unbeliever. Um, and I'll, I could spend the whole hour on why not to, but I'm going to go on. No, so look for a believer, and then look for the evidence of salvation. If you look back at point number one, you're going to see a parallel here. Look for the evidence of salvation. person says, I believe in Christ as my Savior. The words of the famous theologian Chris Rock come to mind. <laughs> Some of you don't know who Chris Rock is, do you? He is a uh, comedian who I'm pretty sure is not a Christian. But he said something really smart about this. He said, ladies, remember, for the first six months, you're not dating the man. You're dating his representative. What's he saying? He's saying people don't really show who they are at first in a dating relationship. Now, I would hope that a real believer would not be that way. But if you're going out dating someone and you're getting into that time of life where you're thinking, I am going to be looking for a husband or a wife, you need to be asking the question, do I see the evidence of Christ? Not just do they say they're a believer and then tra-la-la go on their way. Do they show the evidence of knowing Christ? Um, I have a fine Christian woman in my church whose husband I've never even met. I saw him going out the door at McDonald's one day. And I talked to her about some of this stuff, and she said, you know, we grew up in the same church, not ours, but one where they lived as young people, and we got married, and I just assumed he was a Christian. And once they got married, he never darkened the door again. Now, it would be my conviction, and I'm willing to be wrong, that a person who either doesn't know the Lord or doesn't intend to live for the Lord would show that in some fashion during the time of dating. In other words, you're looking for their heart. You're looking for things like this. Are they devoted to God? What happens when you talk about serving God? Is there, is there goal in life to live for God? Do they talk about living for God or do they actually live for God? I came to camp all those years, and I love to be at camp. But was I actually living for God? No. Talk about it. Do they talk about church, or do they actually serve in the church? When you go and say, hey, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, would you do this, that? Oh, whoa, I'm busy. Hey, that says something about your discipleship. It does. Do they care about other people or are they completely self-absorbed? Do they readily submit to God's commands? And then closely aligned with that, the next point, is there an evidence of a growing Christian life? Is positive change happening consistently? Now, I, I'm not perfect. And I know none of you are and none of our teenagers are. And my kids aren't. My grandkids are close. Although this last Sunday, 
They, they, were, they were, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but is positive change happen? In other words, here's what I'm saying, folks. When you're trying to assess, is this person actually a follower of Christ, a serious disciple of Christ, one of the questions to ask is, do I see change and growth and progress? There should be some visible evidence of growing in Christ. Do they talk about how the sermon impacted them, or do they talk about how somebody else needs it? You know, I don't know if you know this, but pastors know the difference between those two kinds of input on the way out the door. Good sermon today, pastor. Praise the Lord. I know it was good. (laughs) I know you needed to listen to it. But then some people come out and say, man, you know, I'm, I'm grappling with this and I'm thinking through that and this, this really is something in my life and, and they're just thinking it through. Boy, that's what a disciple, a disciple, for that matter, when a disciple is sitting in a place where God's word is taught, they're trying to learn. In other words, sometimes that's kind of hard. I know that. I sit in some of those places occasionally. But they're trying to learn. They're trying to grow. That is their goal. Here's one that should show in a relationship time frame. Is is there a willingness to admit wrongs and apologize or ask forgiveness as needed? Is that important in marriage? Yeah. And if they don't manifest that element of discipleship. I mean... This is based off the whole concept of God tells me what is right and wrong, and when I encounter the wrong, I say, that was wrong, God, and the right thing is what I'm going to pursue. That's the whole concept of being a disciple, and that should also be going on in the relationship or, or in, their, in their normal human relations. If you're dating somebody, you watch how they interact with their parents, and their mom and dad says, Johnny or Susie, X, Y, Z, and if they look at their mom and dad and go take a hike you should go whoa because when we get married they're going to say the same thing to me discipleship is 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 a consistent quality throughout life if they act one way at church or one way at the job or one way at their sports team and another way when they're with you there is a serious problem in their discipleship Do they change when a wrong is pointed out? If you're a disciple of Christ and somebody comes to you and says, brother, sister, here's something I think you need to think about, do you just go, because if you do, you're not a disciple. A disciple stops and listens and thinks, hey, that may be God sharing something with me. Now I need to go and talk to God. I need to open the Bible. I need to pray. I need to consider this thing in my life. Maybe I need to talk with this person more. But they don't blow it off because they're concerned to walk with the Lord. That's what a disciple is. And, and, and I understand that in young people, these qualities may be in their incipient form or their beginning form, but we've got to look for them. If you're a parent looking at a young person who wants to marry your child, these are the kinds of things you should be looking at because this is the truth, as now, so then. As now, so then. Why do you think they're going to be different when they get married? I honestly, 
I have to believe that some people assume that on the day the knot is tied, everything's going to change. Oh, it's going to change. Because you're going to be together 24-7. And this stuff, this stuff that we've been talking about is really going to be magnified. And so you need to be asking the question, would I honestly be completely comfortable living the rest of my life with this person, with these characteristics as they are? As now, so then. I just had somebody get married in my church. Didn't talk to me about it. Didn't talk to anybody about it. Second marriage for her and the person she married. I, you know, this guy came to church a couple of times. I don't, I don't even know him or his history or whatever. But I got an email and she said, Do, could you send me the vows you use in a wedding? Because we're going to get married by the justice of the peace in two weeks and his vows don't have anything about God in them. Mm. So you, you don't want any input. You don't want any help understanding if this person is a disciple or if you or him are ready to get married. You just want somehow to sprinkle that God dust on your wedding. I believe that's what people think. In Tukwila, I used to get a lot of cold calls for weddings, people I didn't know. And, and I talked to them all, and I ended up marrying a few of them. And, and uh, you know, unbelievers, one unbeliever to another. But they would come in, and part of the interview, I'd say, like if they were asking to get married in the church, I'd say, why do you want to get married in the church? And they'd look at me like, what's wrong with you? And they've just given testimony of the fact that they don't know Christ. They aren't, and, and they've given testimony to the fact that they aren't conducting their relationship in a godly way, but they want that God does sprinkled on their marriage. They want me to say, God's going to bless your marriage. And so I would go on to tell them, I'd say, you know, God wants to bless your marriage, but the way he blesses is, and we would talk about that, be a disciple, look for a disciple. That's number, that's, uh, that is the starting point. Number two you must stay sexually righteous. Now, let me just say something right at the beginning. And I want to talk to every single person here. Any kind of sex is sex. Doesn't matter what Bill Clinton said. Depends on the definition of is. No. Real popular these days for young people to have something less than complete sexual intercourse and somehow think this is okay. It's not. Because what I'm going to describe to you today is the impact that sex has on the relationship. I understand that there are many commands in the New Testament and I could, you know, spend a whole hour here, God says it's wrong, God says it's wrong, God says it's wrong. And, you know, frankly, when you get in love, you aren't that interested in what's right and wrong. But I want to talk to you about the impact because the impact, the impact of sex before marriage is why I see a lot of people in counseling. And I would say, when it comes to people who come to a crisis in their marriage, this is the number one mistake that they make. Now, 
if you understand my concept of discipleship, I've just said you need to be a disciple and find a disciple. If you are a disciple, you will not be having sex before marriage. And so there's a sense in which we could just stop right there and say, if you're a disciple, that's the key. But what I want to do is go on to say, even those people who seem to be walking with the Lord oftentimes make this mistake and they don't realize the impact that it's going to have on them. And so I want to talk about this, this impact. And I want you to open to this diagram and get ready to put some notes on it. Because this might be something you truly haven't thought about before or, or thought through. In your notes there you see um, God speaks of three kinds of love in marriage. Now, I know right away that God only uses two specific words for love in the Bible, but listen until I'm through here. One of those words is philia. We get the word Philadelphia from it. It commonly is translated brotherly love. In the passage we're working on tonight in 1 Corinthians, actually tomorrow, or 2 Peter, it's translated brotherly kindness. But it means a kind of love that, that comes from the fact that we are, we are brothers. We are humans together. There is a human connection. I believe that this in marriage and in dating relationship, that this refers to what we would broadly call companionship. Adam was alone, and God said it's not good that the man should be alone. Aloneness was the primary thing God addressed through marriage. Sex was not the primary thing. And so companionship, the idea that two people spend their lives together, they do things together. Um, a few years ago, I had the chance to go to uh, Bangladesh and China and do some ministry and and I was going to be gone for three weeks, and it didn't hit me that I was going to be gone for three weeks till I laid my head on the pillow in Bangladesh. And I went, dude, I'm going to be gone for three weeks. And I realized it was the first time I'd ever done something like that without my wife. And I went to China, and I thought, man, I want to bring my wife here. Because that's, you know, we don't do everything together. We're not one of those couples that are attached at the hip, and, and it's fine if you are. But a lot of the, most of the big things... You know, and, and, and we have this common frame of reference. We, we, we say jokes about things and, uh, you know, third world rules of lining up. You know what the third world, you know what that rule is? Come here, bud. The third world rule of lining up is when you're waiting to get on the airplane, you better stand this close to the person in front of you because if you don't, what will happen? Other people will cut right in front of you. Otherwise, and what will happen is when you get on the plane, there won't be any luggage space left in all of the overhead bins. Because in America, we're, we're not, oh, you go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. I guarantee you, you'll be last in line if you're in the third world getting on an airplane. But that's just a comment. Thank you, bud. You can sit down. So I'm pushing her sometimes going, third world, come on, let's go, let's go. But it's just our common frame of reference. That's the kind of stuff that companionship is about. It's about family and all of that. And that's a wonderful thing. God has a lot to say about companionship love. Number two is eros. Now, here's an, interesting, here's an interesting question for you. What is the word, the closest word that would specifically be a Greek word about sex, what's it used for in the Bible? Oh, have you ever done a word search on this kind of stuff, Tom? 
it's used to refer to male and female. The word sex is never used like we use it to refer to the physical connection between men and women. All of the terms, and there are a bunch of terms that refer to the connection between men and women, like this right here, where God says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators or people who have promiscuous sex will be judged by God. So clearly this is talking about the physical relationship in marriage, but it doesn't say sex. The closest Greek word would have been the word eros. We get our word erotic from it. The word eros is never used in the Bible. But God talks often in many ways in the Old Testament, the most common term for a sexual connection between two people is to lie with. We have a common euphemism today. It's called sleeping with someone. It's the same way. God saw saw fit to be gracious, if you will. And so, but I am using this word just to make an easy definition between the other two words. Because the third word, of course, is agape or sacrificial love. This is the most common word translated love in the New Testament, I think 250 times or something like that. And, and, and the definition, the definition of that word comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. You know, that word agape was rarely used by the ancient Greeks because they didn't even, the concept didn't really even come into their culture. The concept of me laying down my life for somebody else, that was like, what? And so the definition is 1 John three sixteen. by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So that's the definition. Now, what I want to say to you is these three kinds of love should be in every marriage. And these three kinds of love are present in some form in every dating relationship. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that sexual connection is supposed to be uh, uh, present, but I am saying this. The concept of physical attraction, beauty, the electricity of holding somebody's hand, a hug, that sort of thing, is all part of this physical connection. Okay? Now, you've got a diagram there, and here's, that's why I've got my whiteboard, so I can draw. I'm not sophisticated enough to uh, be able to draw on the screen and have it be cleaned afterwards, but I'm going to go like this, like that, like that, like that. Um, way over here, in fact, maybe I can point and show you. We're going to call this point, the beginning of this graph, first date. Okay? First date. And so there's an unknown period of time that goes on between first date and the beginning. Um, you know, here they're, they're, they're dating, they're building, they're building their philia relationship. Their brotherly love, their companionship. They're going to the ball game. They're doing this. Lord willing, they're going to church, whatever. They're, they're building some shared experience. By the way, philia is what youth groups are built on too. Shared experience. If you get a youth group to really have a shared time together doing things, that's when the group really comes together. So dating. And then this point right here, is at the point at which sex enters the relationship. Now, I've put a whole series of D words. And the first word is delight. Okay? 
You could put the word delight right there. I'm going to go way out on a limb here. All of you that are married, I want you to raise your hand if you were delighted when you began to have sex. Yes, it's a delightful thing. Now, is it just a physical thing? No, it's more than that. And if you, someday, if you buy my book (laughs) that's not published yet, and you look at all of these references, all of the ways that God talks about the sexual relationship, including a verse like uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, about verse 18, he that is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh. God doesn't say that constitutes a marriage, but somehow that one flesh thing, start, that, that companionship connection starts when the first time when you start, well, and uh, I, I understand there are difficulties in the first time sometime, and, and you know, parents, I'll give you something to talk about later, but when you start having a sexual relationship with somebody, it is, oh man, we are in love. Or, you know, the opposite is also true. Don't want anything to do with that person ever again. Generally speaking, there is delight. God intends that when two people come together sexually, there is also an emotional connection. And, and so it is very... It is very real to say, I'll just, I'll put it simply this way. I have a deep emotional bond to this person I've just had sex with. You think? God created this. Do you think God just created a one-layered thing? And so, yeah, there is a deep emotional bond that comes. Now, the world has come to believe, the unsaved world has come to believe that that delight right there is the focal point of relationship and the determining factor on whether the relationship is worth keeping or throwing away. So delight is the first thing that happens. But something else also starts to happen. If I could uh, try to draw this like this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make three lines right here. And these three lines represent the three aspects of relationship. When you start dating someone, two of those should be moving along, brotherly love and agape. They should be moving along. They should be progressing like this. You, you know, if, if you start dating and keep dating and and, you know, and, and it goes on, you're getting closer, you're, you're having a lot of shared experience, and there's a lot of, you know, you're sacrificing, uh, you're, you're doing good things for each other, and so on. Those two things progress. In a godly marriage, that third one, the eros, stays relatively stagnant until the marriage. But in this relationship here, where they've had sex early, What happens is this thing here, Eros, goes like this. Boom. And what do you suppose happens to these two? These two stagnate. Now, there's a real simple reason that they stagnate. You don't need them. The emotional bond that comes from sex is so strong especially the younger that you might be 
and not realizing what's going on. And you, you would say, I'm in love. Boy, I am in love. And again, what, what you mean is there is a tremendous emotional bond between us. And typically what happens in this phase is they'll say, well... Johnny's not too much like this. Johnny's not too much like that. Susie's not too much this way or that way. But we're really in love. And they look at this stuff down here, the companionship and the sacrifice that should be present. They go, well, I I know that's not happening, but boy, we're really in love. We're really in love. And that's what I call, that's what I call delusion. Delusion. And it is a strong delusion, a strong delusion. And then, as time moves on, at some point right in here is engagement. Now, that may happen for many reasons. Frankly, some people get engaged for, you know, well, we've been sleeping together, so we ought to get married or a lot of other reasons, but sometimes they just, they're really, they're on this high. Hey, we're going to get married, and it's going to be great. And so they get married. Married. They get married based on that emotion. Now, again, what was not growing in this time? Companionship and sacrifice were not growing. Now, when you get married, those of you that are married are going to have to help me out with this. How long does it take until you get a little frustrated sometimes? What? First week. You know, I was watching a a TV show the other night with a bunch of celebrities playing a game show. And they used one of the same exact illustrations that I do, only they were just telling a story. And the story, that I, the illustration I always use, I'm going to use my friends Craig and Lila. Craig, how do you squeeze the toothpaste tube? You just grab it and squeeze? You just grab it and go. You don't even think about it, do you? How do you squeeze it? From the bottom up. That's right. How many grabbers on the toothpaste do we have here? And how many very careful squeezers? Yeah. One time I used this in a Sunday school class, and, and a guy said, But it says on the tube, for best results, squeeze from the bottom. (laughs) That guy was an airline pilot, you know. (laughs) Hey, we laugh about it. Be honest enough to say, have you ever really been frustrated about the toothpaste? Specifically. Okay? We bought, we got sick, we had five tubes of toothpaste in our house. (laughs) You can squeeze it any way you want. The other night on this game show, there, the, the pop singer Usher and his wife was on there. I don't know who she is, but she's famous too, I guess. And they were talking about they'd just gotten married, and they talked about how she messes with the top of the toothpaste, and he doesn't like it. Even popular people get frustrated. <laughs> okay, and so... But you know what? If you have not been learning to lay down your life in sacrifice, then when you get married and now you're together, you're together 24-7, I know you're at work and that sort of thing, 
but you're sleeping in the same bed, you're using the same bathroom, you're, you're there all the time. The opportunity and the need for sacrifice really increases. And if you haven't learned to lay down your life, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're going, whoa, this person isn't as great as I thought. This person is not as good as I thought. Now, there's another thing that goes on, and I'm showing this disillusion, that the relationship is disintegrating as the disillusion is increasing. Because here's another dirty little secret that they don't teach you in sexual education class in high school. The thrill of sex diminishes with time to a normal level. Okay, how many of you married people know what I just said? That's right. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In other words, when you first have sex, you're going, "Well, this is the greatest thing in the world," and it is, and it has a tremendous impact on your relationship. But over time, it comes down to what I would call a normal level. Because remember, there are three parts to the marriage, and they all have to be active. And, 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 and this is not the most important thing. If anything, we'd say this is the most important. I would define it this way. This is what marriage is about. It's about this companionship, and that is maintained by this, and it's enhanced by that. And so, you know, when kids come, everything changes. No more wild carefree young people. You got one kid, you got two kids, you got two kids at a time, you know, whatever. And so now, now what's your life about? You know, now your life is not even about that so much as this. You're just constantly called on to sacrifice. And so that's just normal life. And it can be a wonderful life. But if your basis for marriage was the thrill of sex, when the thrill starts to wear off, what do people say? They say, you're not the same person I married. And you know what? That's partially true. Because over here, over here, what did, how were they looking at their loved one? Like this. They, weren't, they were not looking at who this person really was. They felt this great bond And so then what happens, eventually, eventually this relationship comes down to some kind of a point of despair. And I know despair is kind of a, kind of a big word, kind of a really, oh, that's really, but it's, it's got a D in it, and so I had to use it. Um, but that's not too far off of what happens. And then what happens next depends on where they're at in the Lord. Because I know that <clears throat> people enter into marriage, and maybe then they get saved, or maybe they get right with the Lord. There is absolutely hope for everybody in the Lord. I've seen all kinds of marriages restored. 40-year-long marriages of people who read their Bible every day and sleeping in separate beds, I've seen them restored. And I've seen short marriages restored, and I've seen marriages disintegrate. Because they come to this point, and the big question right here now is, Who's in charge of my life? 
Because why would you sacrifice? Why would you sacrifice? Why would you lay down your life for another person if you're not a disciple of Christ? I had a couple referred in to me for counseling from another church. Husband had had an affair. And they came in and he seemed to be repentant and talked to the wife about forgiveness and she expressed forgiveness and there was kind of a new start and well, they went off on a vacation, the whole family together, and boy, they were just wonderful, right up until the point where she found out that affair had been going on for a year. It was not a one-night stand, and he had not told her any of that, and she was enraged, rightly so. And you know what he said, sitting in my office? Tell her to forgive. Well, what about you sacrificially laying down your life and being patient and humble and admitting your wrongs and working through this? No. No, I could do that. Why? Because what also came out through the counseling was he was not a believer in Christ. He was the guy who said the words when they got married, but he didn't mean it. Why in the world will you sacrifice? If you get to this point, you've got to pull into the Lord hard. And the Lord can change things, and he will. But my goal is that you don't get to that point. Now, lest you think, lest you think that I have thought this all up on my own, let me fast forward here. Oh, I don't have it in the, it's in the notes. Look in the notes. A quote from the National Health and Social Life Survey conducted by the University of Chicago was the first serious, fully reputable study of sexual behavior in America, and it found a marked connection between premarital sex and the elevated risk of divorce. Quote, for both genders, we find that virgins have dramatically more stable first marriages. Okay, these people were not starting from a Christian perspective. What's that? I'd have to go back. I don't have it in my notes. Oh, uh, in the last... uh, There's been a a, a bunch of studies in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, One of the early ones that got me thinking about this and trying to understand this from a Christian perspective came from the University of Minnesota. And their study has been widely quoted and written about by many people basically saying those who have sex before marriage, their relationship on the average will last five years. What? Now, that's on the average because how many people have sex before marriage and then that's the end of the relationship? I mean, I've been reading a book called Sex in America, which is a huge sociological study of college students on college campuses. They've, they've focused in on that sector. And, and if you think the person you're going to get in bed with is the person you're going to marry, you're probably wrong. And that's the other thing that, you know, think, oh, I'm really, I really like this person and they really want to have sex. I think it's going to work out. Hey, here, here's another piece of rocket science for you. If the person you're dating is asking you to have sex, 
they are not a disciple. Period. There is no godly justification for having sex before marriage. I had a 50-year-old lady in my church in Tukwila who had been divorced for many years, was going to get remarried, and I was going to do this th- wedding. And, and then something happened in the, in the farther out uh, family life of this man she was going to marry, and their wedding got delayed. So she just moved in with him. And this woman had like two or three adult daughters, and I just said to her, are you telling me if your daughter came along and said, this circumstance happened and I'm just going to move in with the guy, that you'd say, oh, well, that's okay. And she went, hey, friends, here and here, let me come back to my point. This is my point. This will land you in my office for counseling. With one exception, and the exception is, at this point, if you draw into the Lord, and you and your spouse both really become disciples, and you really grow in Christ, I believe Christ can change it without my help or anybody else's help. But if you don't do that, this is where you're headed. Now, (laughs) folks, I believe that God helps us to understand both the what and the why. Um, And we can see it all around us. I read this Amy Dickinson advice column in the paper to see how the world thinks. My boyfriend and I have been together since we were 16. We are now 22. Do the math, that's how many years? Six years. We have been together. We have graduated from college. We are working in our professional fields. We moved in together last June. I am ready to get engaged and married and within three years to start having children. He, on the other hand, is not ready for any of that because he feels he's still really young, and in reality we are, and recently went to, we recently went to a friend's, a friend's wedding. He felt very uncomfortable about it. As did I, and we got into a huge fight. He said things that he immediately regretted. How do I speed up the process of getting that ring on my finger and carry on with our life together? That is a common experience, folks. And what I'm here to say is, you cannot walk on this path and achieve a good result. Tonight we're going to talk about the... the, reaping the divine nature, the nature of Christ, or avoiding the corruption that is in the world through lust. You cannot avoid the breakdown of the world without following Christ in the way you build relationships. Um, Let me make one more point quickly. Oh, let me go here. Now, let me turn spiritually. Let me turn spiritually. And I don't know if you've ever thought this through in this way. What happens when a couple has sex before marriage? First of all, their fellowship with God is broken. Now, I don't believe sex is any worse of a sin than any other thing. Let's say you're dating someone, and they like to shoplift. Okay, They've been in the habit of shoplifting. Just little things. Just little things. Are you going to go along with that? Mom and dad, 
Your child comes home and says, I'm dating a boy and he likes to steal things. <laughs> well, does he steal big things or little things? <laughs> Has he ever been caught? You go, that's stupid, Dave. Yes, it is stupid. Do you think that a sexual relationship is any less significant than getting arrested? I'm telling you, what comes out here is a family breakdown. You want to look at in our world, and, and that's what's going on. Use. So, fellowship with God is broken. Anytime you sin, your fellowship with God is broken. You're not cast out of his family, but there's a cloud between you and him. Now, what happens with step number two after that unconfessed sin is step number two a good step or a bad step you don't know and what happens to step number three step number four step number five and oh would you marry me you don't know if that's a good decision you're no longer being led by the spirit if you're walking in the flesh god wants you to confess your sin be right with him i'm going to do a wedding this weekend of a couple who got in bed and then stopped and said, hey, this isn't right. We want to be disciples of Christ. I believe their wedding, is, their marriage is a good thing. And I believe now they're approaching it in a godly way. I believe God can change and heal and restore. Absolutely. But you cannot know that you are being led by God. Don't tell me God led you to marry this person if you're sleeping with them. Because you don't know. You don't know. Mom and dad, do you want to set your kids up for success? I'm here to tell you, my whole family will be here at some point this week, and we enjoy being together. They aren't quite as perfect as I am, but they're close. <laughs> and we will have some fun. My wife's birthday on the 4th of July, and we'll have a little birthday celebration. And you know what? I know for a fact that there won't be any drama Yeah, maybe with the granddaughters, but don't you want that? Boy, I want that. This is, the, this is not the way to get that. And then you're walking in the flesh, and they have no interest in the spiritual counsel of their pastor or family. When you're walking in sin, do you want to hear a godly brother or sister come alongside and say, hmm, I think you're going in the wrong direction? A lady in our church just shared her testimony with the ladies group recently and she was 19 engaged to a 33 year old and she said I did not listen to the people around me who were saying this is a bad decision and it wasn't just because of their age and she married him and it was 20 years of real real difficulty real difficulty but people who are living in sin they don't want any spiritual counsel and any opposition to their marriage is a reason for an argument. That's the kind of stuff you're getting. If you don't know whether your kids are living in sin, if they act like that, assume it. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me point number three. Let me just hit this and go. Um, there's, the, there's that study that I quoted from there. And I can look up the year on that later, Don. You must use your dating time wisely. 
And, and this is where I, 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 don't, uh, I don't intend to teach you exactly how to date. But let me just say this. I, I, I believe I'm proposing a third model. The first model is the secular model. Just do whatever feels good. Get the results you want. And then the model that's become popular is, is probably best summarized by the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Now, the problem with that is Josh Harris did not kiss dating goodbye. Most people didn't read the book. They just read the title. What Josh Harris did was he kissed dating goodbye because he had been operating in a secular model, and he stopped that until he matured up and got to a point where he was genuinely interested in marriage, and then he started dating. (laughs) Read the book Boy Meets Girl. It's a great model. But here's the point. Don't trust in a model. Trust in God. Trust in God. Um, what should be happening when you're, when you're using, in a dating time? You should be learning relationship skills. What do I mean by that? Tom, when you first got married, did you know everything you needed to know about women, and in particular, this woman? Did you have some things to learn? <laughs> did you start to learn them when you were dating? Do you remember getting some wake-up calls along the way where you thought, hmm, maybe I should ask Becky about that. <laughs> dating time should be when you learn about boy-girl relationships in a, in a positive way. Guys and girls think differently on some areas, think very differently in other areas, and that's not a bad thing. Are you going to wait? Are you going to stay so separate that on the day you get married, you're not going to even really know how somebody of the opposite sex thinks at all? That doesn't make sense. Well, of course not, Pastor Dave. That's a stupid thing. That's right. And so somehow, somehow, you need to find a method that allows you to learn relationship skills. Um, you know, things like learning to be a friend, learning to, reg- to relate to those of the opposite gender, learn to discuss, disagree, respect, and resolve differences. Is that going to be important in marriage? <laughs> you know, um... Be who you are. Be who you are. I, I could, <laughs> could tell you some stories, but I won't because I would embarrass myself. But I was who I was with my wife, and she hung in there with me anyway, <laughs> for which I'm very glad. All of these aspects of human relations, you should be learning these things in the home. You know, when you teach your children, no, you can't hit each other. you got to work things out. All of that social skill stuff... But there's a uniqueness to the male-female romantic relationship that leads to marriage, which you need to be learning some things. Discern discipleship. In other words, when, when you're coming into a relationship with a boy or a girl, a young man or a woman, you should be thinking, I need to be seen. Are they really a follower of Christ? That's the time to discern it, not after you get engaged. Do you know what premarital counseling does to the quality of the relationship? Very little. You know why? Because once people get engaged, how do they think? We're getting married, and it's going to be perfect. Everything's wonderful. And, and your poor pastor is sitting there going, now there's some things you ought to think about. And they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. We try anyway. We're pushing it in there best we can. And occasionally a little light goes on. But you know, honestly, once you should be ready to get married by the time you get engaged. 
And there's some things that can be learned there. Discern discipleship. Discern compatibility. The world will tell you that you need to find a soulmate. And if you find a soulmate, everything will work out. And if you come to the end of a marriage and you get divorced, then the problem is you didn't have a soulmate. So now go find a soulmate and everything will work out. And then do that again and again and again. But there is a, there is a contrast in Proverbs 27.15, it says a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. In other words, it's possible for you to marry somebody that's so different from you that you really struggle to get along. And so I just want to say this about compatibility. There's no merit badge for marrying somebody you don't enjoy. Okay, so yeah, find somebody you enjoy. Um, I'm looking for that when I'm talking to premarital couples. Do they really enjoy each other? Um, discuss general ideas about marriage. Discuss your life desires. When, when we were getting serious in our relationship, I said, look, I'm going to be a pastor. God has called me to be a pastor. I don't know where I'm going to be or what I'm going to do other than I'm going to be a pastor. Do you want to be a pastor's wife? I think that's only fair if there's something that significant in your life that you talk about those things. But even if it's not, you can say, well, you know, someday I'd like to live in Alaska or someday, you know, or, or, or I really believe in um, this way of, of doing certain things. And then at some point when you're getting serious, get some objective evaluation. Ask somebody about your relationship. Don't be so proud that you won't go to your youth leader, your pastor, your small group leader, somebody, and say, hey, you've been watching us. What do you think? What do you think? Obtain parental evaluation and approval. And I'm not trying to suggest that parents only get involved down here. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is when you come to a point where you're starting to think, I want to marry this person, then you need to get more formal about how you get input. What did you say to all three of us children when we asked to get married? <laughs> <laughs> she wants some paybacks here now. <laughs> No, did all three? I guess I kind of did. I, I, I don't remember Ben and Gloria. But uh, you had hesitations that took a while. That's right, I did. And uh, you know, they you know, I think Stephanie said, eh, we're kind of talking about getting married. And uh, do you mind if I say? I said Raul had come to this country legally and by but he had overstayed his welcome. I said he's got to get his immigration status fixed before you can get engaged. Is that, a, is that a, a wise thing for a parent to say? Yeah, yeah take that, yeah. <laughs> now, they went, now, they went and talked to one of their pastors who had, they were down in California, they went and talked to one of their pastors who had worked through the same thing and he gave them some advice. They went to a lawyer, the lawyer gave them some advice and they told me that advice. I said, okay, that's good, all right, you know. But, hey, why am I going to go, oh, I don't nothing I can do. Oh, 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 I'm so far away. And then they get married and it's a disaster. And whose fault is it? Mine. Because I'm supposed to be the leader of this family. This one here went off to Europe to, uh, to uh, be a nanny and speak French and ooh, la, la, and all that in Vienna. <laughs> and she got connected with this guy who I knew his family from Bible college days and whatnot. And and they had this long-distance relationship. 
and they came home with a certain timetable. You forget that part. You came home with a timetable and said, well, we, we envision this and this and this, and then we're going to get married. You know, this and this, and then we're going to get engaged, and then we're going to get married. And I said, okay. I said, okay to that. And then all of a sudden, boom, here he is saying, we want to get married. And I said, no. And I got a phone call from her. He's a little calmer than her, but... <laughs> okay, Molly, breathe. <laughs> and because what I said was, I don't think you've had, you've had enough face time together. They had a long-distance relationship, but when it comes to relationship skills and so on, you can be really nice. Remember, ladies, for the six, first six months, you're dating his representative. And, on long, long, and so I'm just saying, hey, and then we had some other discussions about some kind of traits in her life and saying, convince me of certain things, and she did. And then I said, yes, yes I did. Because, hey, I only get one chance. And, and I want to tell you men out there, that's what godly leadership is. You should be active in this. Um, I don't want to have drama. If you discipline your children, the proverb says, they will give you peace. Boy, that's what I want. I want peace, especially when I get to be an older man than I already am. Um, let me just blast through this. Declare your interest. I mean, in other words, I, I think there's some value in just saying, okay, let's, let's formally talk about this. And, and let's look through some of these details. Get an, another, once you're saying, hey, we're getting married, get some more evaluation. Get your parents' approval. And then get engaged. Do not get engaged first and then run around and say, hey, Pastor Dave, what do you think about this? I think this is a disaster. Um, <coughs> be a disciple. Marry a disciple. Stay sexually pure. There it is. There's a summary of this whole long, boring lecture. Be patiently careful to build your relationship. Be patiently careful. In other words, when you're dating, be patiently careful. I, uh, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to be patient. I was young. It's still hard to be patient about some things. Let me give you one final example of what not to do. Hi, Pastor Dave. This is from somebody. I can't tell you too many details, but I had a lot of I had a lot of long distance relationship with uh, a long distance communication with this person, trying to help them disciple through a hard time. And I, you know, they made some progress. Kind of we're back in our area for a while, and then gone to another area. And then I get this email: Hi, Pastor Dave. I'm getting married on Friday. Okay. I was curious as to the issue most discussed in your marriage counseling. In other words, he's saying, I'm getting married on Friday. Can you give me a crash course so I'll be ready? I was seeking your counsel or anything you feel led to share. She supports my idea of writing as I currently have no job. Of course I can and will as the Lord leads. And I know this guy's history, and I'm here to tell you that was the, definitely the wrong way for him to enter marriage. Uh, I have no idea how that's worked out for him. Um, let me just say this. I really do want God's best for you and yours. And, uh, and so I've just tried to share my heart today. Now, I'm not going to take any time for questions 
because I've kept you here a long time. But if you have a question, if you have an argument, if you have a disagreement, I will be happy to entertain it. And I mean that. I mean that. I have just shared with you a condensation of a lot of material. And I'll be glad to talk uh, at more length with you about it. Um, on the, there's a table in the back that has some books on it. I brought them from our, uh, we have a little puny bookstore at our church. And I just brought some books. A lot of them are things you won't find in a common bookstore because they're, they're a biblical approach to the deep difficulties of life. And they're for sale because we had to pay for them. We're not making any money. I'm not making any money. And it says the price is on the book, and the price is half of whatever the price on the book says. And if there's not a price there, come see me, and I'll make one up. <laughs> It'll include a little bit it pops in, plus whatever the other is. So, <laughs> All right, let me pray. Father, uh, I thank you for the joy that you've given me in my marriage and in my family, and I give you the credit for that. I am fully aware that without you, I would have been in this despair. I would have been in the corruption that comes in the world through lust. And so I give you the credit for that. And I just ask you to work in all of these people. I do not want them to come to difficulty in their lives. And and if they're already there, Father, I want you to rescue them. And I want you to change them and cause them to become disciples in this most important area of life. Father, I pray that you'll continue to work this week. Thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you for the beautiful place. Help us to have a great afternoon together. I pray in Christ's name, amen. I think, I don't know what... what